Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, we'll talk scams and how you can avoid them. We'll also hear from a local attorney who's taking on business interruption insurance. Mark Peterson with the Pennsylvania Golf Association getting us set for heading out to the course. And we're going to start things off today by meeting Jean Cadeau. She is with the Federal Communication Commission, and Jean is going to tell us about how TV stations changing frequencies are going to affect your TV at home. With a little bit of background, here's Jean. One of the things that we do at the FCC is make sure that we use the nation's airwaves as efficiently as we can, and we've identified the TV spectrum that TV uh, stations use to broadcast their signals as an area we could use more efficiently and therefore free up some spectrum for wireless carriers. American consumers have ever-increasing demand for faster and faster speeds and more and more capacity for their wireless devices. So we're rearranging some TV stations across the country to use uh, less less uh, airwaves and more more efficiently and free up space for wireless carriers. So what that means is that if a viewer watches TV using an antenna, meaning a rooftop or an indoor uh, antenna, as opposed to cable or satellite subscription to get their local TV, they'll need to rescan the, their TVs each time this happens so that their TV knows where to find the channels at their new place in the airwaves. When you talk about something like this happening, are there any possibilities that people are going to lose their channels? Uh, there should not be, no. What we uh, made sure we did when we reassigned st uh, frequencies to stations, we made sure that the new frequencies would allow them to broadcast the, to the same coverage area and the same population that they had before. Um, now, while the change is happening, sometimes there's a brief period of time when a station goes onto an interim antenna while they put their new antenna up on their tower, uh, that there may be some decrease in the coverage, but uh, uh, ultimately it will be ex it should be the same. So it should be a seamless proposition from beginning to end. Right, and viewers uh, just need to know that they need to rescan their TVs when this happens to uh, to find the, the channels. Now, when you say rescan, what exactly does that mean? Well, when a, a viewer sets up a TV to use an antenna for the first time, they need to scan the TV to find all of the available local channels. 
Uh, what that means is they uh, basically just go into the menu function on the remote control and uh, and scan the TV, and they had to do that when they set it up. And a rescan is exactly what it sounds like, which is to to redo that process so the TV can go out and find a local channel at its new home. The the channel numbers that viewers see are not changing. So if a viewer is used to watching, say, channel 22, uh, it will still be channel 22, but the TV needs to be trained to find channel 22 at its new home in the air. Ah, okay. So it's it's mo- it's more or less for the TV's benefit rather than the than the viewer's benefit of of the change in the of the channel. Right. We we want to make this as seamless uh, for, for viewers as possible. So uh, stations really do want to continue to use the same channel numbers. So viewers who are used to, to tuning to channel 22 or 64 or whatever whatever they're used to, they'll continue to do. It's just that the TV needs to be retrained. And then how would someone know that this is either happening or has already happened that they would have to go and do this? Is there uh, a way? Yes, so there's a couple different ways. This, the, the TV stations who are affected uh, have to give notice to their viewers at least 30 days in advance, so there'll be uh, public service announcements and on-screen text messages and other things that they use to make sure their viewers are aware of the change and what the date will be on which they'll make it. Um, we also have information on our FCC website, which is uh, www.fcc.gov slash TV Rescan, and there's a, a map a viewer can put uh, his or her zip code in and see which stations are locally available and whether uh, any of them are making the change and the, and the time frame. And then just generally a good rule of thumb is if a viewer uh, has an over-the-air antenna TV, uh, and notices that a channel that they're used to seeing seems to have gone missing, uh, they should probably rescan, and hopefully that uh, is what happened, and that'll bring the channel back. But traditionally, you would only have to rescan once, correct? Well, it's always a good idea. It's sort of like rebooting a computer. Um, ah. It's probably a good idea to do it once in a while. Um, if a viewer hasn't done it in a couple of years, since maybe since they set up the TV the first time, they may find that there are actually more channels available locally for free than they knew they had because what the TV will do when it goes out in the air and scans, it goes through the whole range of possible channels. And local stations are bringing on what we call sub-channels or multicast channels all the time. And those are those, uh, if you watch over-the-air TV, you're used to seeing maybe channel 22.1 and .2 and .3. Well, those .2 and .3 channels are new streams of programming that uh, TV stations are putting out. So it may be a happy circumstance to rescan so the viewers can see that there are actually many more stations available than they thought. And I was just going to say that. Is it possible that when they when they do rescan, they find out that, gee, I was wondering what happened to that one. So is this something that maybe people should do just on a normal basis instead of uh, just accepting the fact that their TV is telling them everything that they think that it should be? Right. The TV is only, only telling them what it found the last time it rescanned. So if a viewer rescans every couple of months or every year or so, they may find that new stations have come on that the TV doesn't know about. Ah, well, that's a surprise. Yeah. 
a pleasant surprise usually. Well, and the good news is these are all for free, right? They, you don't have to subscribe to them. These are all available over the air. So yes, it's a good thing to do. That's right. Now, when are these when are these changes coming into effect? Well, they're happening at different times. We're doing it in a 10-phase process. A couple of stations in Wilkes-Barre, Scranton have already gone, uh, so viewers may uh, uh, have rescanned already, and if not, they may find that those channels will come back when they uh, scan this time. Uh, and then there's, I think, one station that's going to be changing in uh, this current phase, which is this week, uh, and then two more that will be changing in the next couple of months. So viewers should be on the lookout for those notices, and if they notice a channel they're used to seeing goes missing, try rescanning. Jean, if you can give us once again the information on where people can get more information, that would be great. Right. Uh, our website is www.fcc.gov slash TV Rescan. And we've also set up a, a call center uh, with a help desk for folks who may need a little extra help in rescanning and how to do it. They may have forgotten how they did it when they set up their TV. Uh, and the number there is 1-888-CALL-FCC, which is 1-888-225-5322, option number 6. And it's available seven days a week from 8 a.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern Time in English and Spanish. Uh, so if a viewer notices a channel's missing in the evening or on the weekend, uh, they can call that number if they need some help. So they should call you, not the place where they bought the TV. Correct. They, they should call the, the call center and, and get help. Now, if they try rescanning and there's a problem, they might want to call their station and see if the station's having any issues. But uh, other than that, the call center should be able to help them with the rescan process. And uh, hopefully, 99% of the time, it brings the channel back. Excellent. Thank you so much. We appreciate the information. Well, and I appreciate your helping to get the word out to your listeners because we want to make sure that they continue to get all their channels and maybe more. Oh, believe me, especially with everything that's been going on. Ooh, exactly. you don't want to mess with those soap operas. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Not to mention local news and information, but soap operas are important. Thanks again to Jean Cadeau, chair of the FCC Incentive Auction Task Force, for joining us today. Now, local attorney Dan Munley tells us what you need to know about business interruption insurance. He gives all the details to Intercom's Frank Andrews and Mark Davis. I'm not surprised that the Munley Law Firm is on top of this problem. We had an attorney that called us about three weeks ago complaining about business interruption insurance and some bizarre clause in some policies that excluded virus. Attorney Dan Munley is on the line with us right now. Dan, what can you tell us about this whole controversy? Well, first of all, Frank, let me just say I'm glad to be here. It's been a while. So you're asking about the virus clause. Well, Frank, let me just tell you, first of all, business interruption insurance is when you are unable to... Um, if you lose income in your business, if your operations are suspended for one reason or another, and since the governor in this particular instance has issued a statewide mandate forcing all non-essential businesses to close, a great many businesses, both here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, as well as all across America, are now looking to their business interruption insurance to help them survive. And so what you're talking about is an exception called the virus exclusion. So what... I would like people to do, really, I, I know that one of the things people are wondering out there is, do I actually have business interruption insurance, and how can I figure out whether or not I do? So I think that the easiest thing that people can do if they own a business 
is to call their insurance agents and ask them, do I have business interruption insurance? Because your insurance agent not only will tell you whether or not you have business interruption insurance, but will also help you to make the claim. Now, I've been looking at these policies. In fact, I must have looked at, I don't know, 60, 70 different insurance policies over the last couple of weeks trying to help businesses all over northeastern Pennsylvania apply for this business interruption insurance. And what you're talking about there, the virus exception, is an exclusion to the business interruption insurance. So in other words, Frank, let's say you have in your policy business interruption insurance where they're gonna pay your income for the time that your business has been interrupted. And then you have to go to a separate section of your policy for the exclusion section. And if contained within your policy, the exclusion says we will not pay because of a virus, then I think you have a tougher fight. Now we have taken the position in our office that these businesses have not been shut down because of the virus, but rather have been shut down because the governor ordered them to. There's no evidence, for example, that there is in fact a virus on many uh, or any of the properties that our clients that we currently represent have. There's no evidence that there's been any virus on their property. And so we think that when they try to enforce the virus exception, that they're gonna run up against it. But it, it's gonna turn into a significant battle. And the other thing I could tell you, Frank, is that this is going on nationwide. Now we have a case, the State Street Grill, where there is no virus exclusion in the contract. And in fact, they have denied coverage there. I've heard of cases across the country, Frank, where they actually say in their policy, we will pay if there is a virus and the insurance company still refuse to pay. Oh, and why? I mean, why would, why? What, what, is their, what, are the, what is their exception? How are they arguing that they don't have to pay? Well, I think what's going on out there, Frank, is there's been an industry-wide decision made by the insurance companies to say, let's deny them all, and then only a certain percentage of them will come to people like me to help them. The rest of them will just fade away. Right. And I think that that's what's going on out there, Frank. I think there's been an industry-wide decision that's been made. The bean counters have gotten together and have made that decision. I, I hate but, that. They're but, saying that basically if you don't fight it, we'll just let you go. Tough. This is Mark Davis, but those people paid... Hi, Mark. How are you? Good. These people paid those premiums all those years when they didn't have a claim, and now when they're going to collect the insurance, they're saying no. That, That's exactly right, Mark. I mean, they didn't That's mind exactly taking, the, what it is. taking the uh, the premiums and everything all those years for however many years they've been in business. And now when they want to cash in on that policy, they're saying, oh, you got to fight us for it. That's ridiculous. Mark, I'm not so sure these people are cashing in as much as they are surviving. Yeah, I, right, cashing in was too strong a term. No, I, right, surviving, yeah. right. That's right. Yeah, these people need this money to survive. I, I, a lot of my personal friends are in real trouble with these small businesses that they run. And I'm getting phone calls at night they have my phone number. They call me all the time. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm quite concerned about most of them. I mean, we all have to figure out how to get by in these troubled times. And a lot of us have been fortunate enough or had the forethought of purchasing this insurance. And right. then when they deny you, it can be quite frustrating. See, now, now the State Street Grill, we know it. We love it. We ordered dinner from their, from their family yeah. package on Saturday. And, you know, we wouldn't if we thought that there was a virus there. But there's not. They were shut down by the governor. That's exactly right. <laughs> and so what happens next here, Dan? 
what happens next with the State Street Grill? Yeah. Well, we filed a lawsuit against the insurance company for State Street Grill. Here's what happened in that case, Frank, just to give your listeners a general idea and some of the people out there who may have these policies and are starting to think about looking at them. In the State Street Grill policy, for example, or a, let's just say it's not that, let's just say it's a policy, okay? Mm-hmm. In a particular policy, it says we will pay if you lose the use of your property or if there's property damage. And then the insurance company will take the position that there's no property damage as a result of the governor's shutdown, so therefore they don't have to pay. When in fact, it's an either-or clause. Right, so and they either are... either they pay if you lose the use of your property or you have property damage. And in the case of the State Street Grill, they lost the use of their property. Now, Dan, we were told that there are some states that introduced legislation to try and deal with this problem. But can you do that? Can you go back to a clause that was put in years ago? Is the only remedy here a lawsuit? Because there's a clause in each insurance contract that will say that, essentially, they have to be in compliance with the state law. So if the state law comes in and, say, the Pennsylvania legislature passes a law that says you have to pay even if there is a virus exclusion, then they have to come in compliance with the state law. So yes, they can. And in addition to filing the lawsuit, can you file a complaint with the insurance department of Pennsylvania? Because that seems like they're not enforcing the policy the way it should be enforced. Um, Well, I've never done that personally, Mark. I don't know. I'm just Um, just thinking another avenue to to make a complaint because it seems like they paid the premiums in good faith. Now when they need them most, they're saying, nope, that's not covered. Well, that's what's called bad faith, which is another component of the claim we have for State Street Grill. There's no legitimate reason for denying that. And let me tell you something else, Frank, which is something that I think your listeners should consider as they're thinking about this particular policy, and that's this. When we get going again as a society, okay, people like the State Street Grill are going to have to remove 40 to 60% of their seating in order to stay in compliance with the social distancing problems. And so they're going to lose a significant, say it's 60% if they were open and running full speed ahead, they're still going to lose 60% of that business. So this loss that they're going to sustain is going to continue to lengthen. And in addition to that, if you think about like the Viewmont Mall, for example, all those stores contained within the Viewmont Mall, they all depend on foot traffic for their business. And if people aren't coming in there because they're afraid of getting the virus, the foot traffic is going to drop. So this business interruption policy situation is very critical to a lot of our small businesses that are out there. And that's why the Munley Law Firm has gotten involved, because we think we can help. Of course. Now, so the best advice now for all the businesses listening is, first of all, talk to your insurance company and see if you have the coverage, and then contact a lawyer. Well, you got to make the claim. And what I've been doing, Frank, for people is helping them make the claim for free. And I have not had one claim get picked up yet by the insurance carriers, so then they come back to me and then we have to go forward. The key here is to make sure you make the claim, get the denial, because they're going to deny you, and then you can go from there. Wow. Thank you, Dan, It's a bad situation. Fight. It certainly wow, is. that's amazing. I'm not we surprised that fighting, you guys Frank, are leading you know it. That. I am just going to say, <laughs> I'm not surprised you guys are leading it, and I'm glad you're out there fighting, and I know you're going to help the State Street Grill and a million others. Thank you, Dan Mundley. Don't go away. We'll talk golf next on Special Edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. Heading out to golf now that you can throughout the Commonwealth, Intercom's Jason Barsky spoke with Mark Peterson of the Pennsylvania Golf Association with some changes you might need to know about. From the Pennsylvania uh, Golf Association, I want to welcome Mark Peterson. You know, you're with the Pennsylvania Golf Association, but even you would admit there's bigger issues in the world. There's bigger issues in Pennsylvania, but (laughs) recreational activities are important. People are kind of getting batty sitting inside. 
And golfers yeah. especially have been very, very vocal about the, the idea that they, like this ridiculous notion, as it was described to me, that what do you, what do you mean? We can't play golf and, and be safe? This is ridiculous. Of course we can do this. this is of all the sports that are out there, of all the activities, we can do this. Is that the stance you guys have been taking, trying to get these courses reopened? Obviously, um, I am golf addicted. I've played my entire life. Um, but we have to focus on safety first. Um, you know, hey, in addition to it, I'm a type 1 diabetic, so I'm at risk, right? Yeah. But okay. uh, we, so we're, we were focused on safety. Um, we hear from the, from the, our fellow golfers and some of them, you know, maybe they're a little bit more uh, intense or excited about their communication that we should open golf. But we've always remained focused on, we want to do the right thing for health and wellness of everybody. Um, and I said it yesterday uh, in a different report, like we have to open up golf safely, not only for those that work at the facilities and our fellow golfers, but our loved ones when we come home. Right. How is the game going to change for players? Because I know people are very quick when, when things are shut down, they're very quick to say things like, we'll do whatever it takes, but sometimes people aren't really willing to do whatever it takes. Like if you said you have to golf with a special protective bubble mask over your, you know, over your head or a bubble. Right. Over, yeah. Most people would be like, well, that seems ridiculous. Uh, what will change with the, uh, the game moving forward, at least in the short term, in order to get these courses back open? Well, one of the great things about golf is the social aspect, and, and that will change, right? Social distancing requires us to change some of our social habits. It'll change things in the game like touch points. So think of the flag stick, think of a rake, um, think of the, the uh, basket of peas or uh, scorecards and pencils. So those will be eliminated, removed from the golf course. So, um, you know, the rules will have to be relaxed and they have from the USGA. Think of, of holding the golf ball um, in, in the cup with a flag stick. Normally, you would pick the flag stick out mm -hmm. and you'd pick your ball out. Well, now we're not touching the flag stick. So golf and golf superintendents and those involved in the game have tried to become rather creative. Uh, they take a pool noodle and, and cut it down so that only a very small portion of the golf ball can fall into the hole. Interesting. Or okay. they pull up the cup liner so that the ball banks off the cup liner and you don't have to touch the flag stick. Um, the USGA's, you know, provided some modifications to handicap score posting for your for your handicap index to say that, yep. you know, if it banks off a hole liner, what would you most likely get? So some players may take that five footer and just ram it as hard as they can in hopes to hit the hit the hole liner. You know, no. is that uh, maybe hold? Probably not. But we'll we'll let that. We'll, that's that's the other beauty of golf, right? There's tons of debate. What's your favorite golf course? What's your best shot? So on sure. and so forth. This is a uh, Mark Peterson from the Pennsylvania Golf Association. Now I'm not an avid golfer. Uh, my interest in these courses came from just the passionate golfers who were reaching out to me, going, "Can you help? Can you help? Who do you?" You know, uh, or just people. I saw these complaints. So, so when you're talking about, uh, I'm going to say uh, pounding the shots, and I'm just like, I, I, I'm hitting the ball. Is that what you mean? I, I get a little confused with this, but it, it is kind of interesting. The most interesting thing I thought you said in that is about how you said the uh, groundskeepers and the the people who are running the golf courses are getting creative when it comes to how they retrieve the ball. Because I never even would have considered that the ball goes in the hole if people are social distancing. If everyone's putting their same their hand in the ball, that's not safe. The pool, right. the pool noodle idea is, is, is 
so simple, but it's great that someone had that thought. I love how people are thinking outside the box to kind of get us back to normal using creativity, ingenuity, even if it's simple, like a pool noodle. That's just, I love that. Because if you would have asked me, how would you suggest we get the ball back? I would have been like, I don't know. We dig a tunnel and you get it by the windmill. Because I know mini golf more than I know regular golf. But yeah, you, in, in mini golf, you can only play the last hole where your ball never comes back, right? Exactly. You that's every game where you lose. That's, that's <laughs> the extent of it. What, what's going to happen when it comes to cart rentals? Is that going to be something that's going to be out there? Because my wife's cousin's not husband, but kind of like a husband, John, he, he, he needs a cart in order to get out there and, and golf. Right. But, he, you know, it's not feasible really to have like four players with four carts, is it? So actually, that's that's the direction we're headed. Really? Okay. You know, the, the concept, it requires social distancing, right? So there's the challenge. Uh, we're hoping that those can walk, will walk and carry their bag, or, you know, some facilities have um, pull carts, they call them push carts now. Some people own their own. Um, some people, like you said, I, I didn't follow the lineage of, of how you're related to this individual. It was a seven, you know, Kevin Bacon's in there somewhere, I think. Right. But um, yes, we're talking about one person per cart, uh, which means facilities don't have enough carts for a full day of four carts per group. Or and and look, some some clubs and courses might limit not only the number of. Um, players in a group, but they may space out their tee times. We're recommending, you know, 15 minutes as opposed to some public facilities alternate pretty quickly, seven and eight minutes. Some other facilities are 10. But how can we create better social distancing to do this safely? One of the congregation points of concern was the first tee. Um, you know, if you have if you have four groups wanting to go off in a, in a half an hour period, well, some guys are really anxious and they get there 10 minutes before their time. Some guys are a little later, right? We don't want 30 people around the first tee. We want right. that group, whether it's two people, three people, four people, max, they play, they go off. Then the next group 10 minutes later comes on. There's a lot of clubs that are, are recommending that their members or their uh, public golfers don't arrive on on property until 20 minutes prior to their tee time. Is there anything? I mean, I guess it would it would change the game. But for me, being someone who's not a regular golfer, could you do something when it comes to like this? At what time is the first tee off going to be? So let's say it's 8 a.m. It's probably earlier than that. Say it's 8 a.m. Is right. it possible that you know if there's four groups, you could put them? have people start at like a fourth hole and work their way around. So they start at different points. So you're not on top of each other in the beginning and they just circle your way around. So the only problem with that, and that that's almost what, what in, in the business is called like a modified shotgun. The only problem with that is if you start on the fourth hole, you're going to, and when you finish 18, you're going to want to go to the first tee because you're going to want to play oh, yeah. your full round. And there will be other people trying to tee off at that time. Hmm. Um, all right, and a see. shotgun like that would require, you know, a lot of access to either carts or to a particular area okay. before they all go out at a time. So I think we'll see shotguns, um, you know, be uh, not in, not a part of the game for quite some time. Do we? Uh, do you anticipate costs? going up because they're not going to be able to get as many players through and they need to run? Or do you think it's going to be business as usual trying to get some assistance from the government where they can? Or is, is, is golf going to turn into something that, like, unless you have money, you really can't do it? Well, I mean, look, there's, 
there's there's this idea that golf is is only for those that have money, but right. there's there's more public facilities than private facilities, not only in Pennsylvania but across the nation. Um, there's opportunities for rounds of golf that are less expensive than others. Right. Um, the reality is, you know, with a shutdown in early spring, there's lost revenue for golf course owners and, and clubs. Yeah. Yet there's expenses to maintain the golf course, are, you know, are still had, have been going on since, you know, mid-March. Um, so will clubs try and recoup some funds? Yes. Um, are they thrilled at the opportunity to be able to bring some revenue in having, having not seen that cash register or, right. you know, those member statements flow as they used to, of course. Um, are, are, but are also, you know, like, also any, like any group of small businesses, yeah. uh, golf is, is no different, right? There's going to be some really tough times for some, you know, facilities and others will weather the storm maybe a little bit better. Are you going to uh, suggest or is the state requiring some of these places to have their clubhouses shut down so after, you know, after the game you're kind of just leaving and as opposed to hanging out? Yeah, yeah, 100% definitely. Yeah. Um, just prior to the, to the stay-at-home order, um, golf facilities were already preparing for this and already acting uh, kind of similar to what we're going to have in our stated guidelines which is that the clubhouse was closed. Gotcha. Um, that, you know, just like restaurants, any sort of food and beverage was takeout only. And that may not even exist in facilities when we reopen on Friday. Interesting. Um, Down the road, it could be. We to make certain yeah. that we're doing it the right way and, safe, and, and safely so that we can continue to golf here in the near future. In your discussions, uh, have you been in contact with other type of outdoor recreational activities, golf, uh, like, uh, you know, like I, I mentioned before, like little league, I am assuming my son's season isn't going to, isn't going to happen this year, but I don't know. Do you think golf is taking kind of sort of a lead in, in trying to get things going to give hope to other organizations or to kind of for, forge a pathway for other outdoor activities and other sporting activities to get moving? And are you working with other groups to kind of talk about different ideas of how you're handling things? So, in the last month, we've been primarily working in, in just the golf space to talk to, you know, our, our national organizations, our partners throughout the country to make certain that we're all utilizing these best practices to have a safe return or, you know, a safe continuation of golf. Golf is, is fortunate at this point in time that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a team sport. It's not a contact sport. Um, my son plays way more baseball and basketball than he does golf. Um, but it's hard to sit in the dugout. It's hard to throw the ball around um, while providing social distancing. So, you know, we may be able to eliminate the flag stick. You can't eliminate the baseball or the basketball in, in, the, in those sports, right? So it's going to be challenging for them, yeah. um, no doubt about it. Well, look, I, I hope... Uh... I hope it becomes a thriving business because as far as, you know, when it comes to like business meetings, people, you know, it seems like a stereotype, but people do go out there and they have business meetings over games of golf. It, it's a very social game. It's, it's, it's a lot of things families play. Like I never, again, I really didn't play it much, but I know how important it is. Like there's a, a bunch of people up here that was just announced the Scranton Municipal Golf Course is, is not going to reopen. 
Yeah, I and, heard that. And uh, a lot of people are very disappointed about that. And it's one of these things when these things close, it, it breaks people's hearts. So right now, we're going to have a lot of people out there. What's your final piece of advice for anyone who is like, just, uh, do you shine up your clubs? I don't know, getting ready to get out there Friday. Is it just walk slowly toward it? Don't just sprint and expect to, like, be, understand we're going to reopen this thing, but be patient. Well, not only be patient, but plan plan your game. Um, you know, if you if you want to be like I was when I was 13 years old before, you know, one of my first golf tournaments and reorganizing my get, get my bag and shining every club, fine. But you have to have your plan. You have to have your, you know, how you're going to get to the facility, how you're going to navigate the facility under the guidelines of social distancing and safety. Gotcha. Okay. Um, we can't just show up hang out in the parking lot until your three buddies go, you know, play around the golf, knock back a couple beers uh, in a social environment. We're just not there yet. Mark Peterson <laughs> from the Pennsylvania Golf Association. Uh, great finally catching up with you. And uh, hopefully people follow the regulations and the rules going forward so that there's no setback where the state steps in and tries to, cause that's, I just hope when we do this uh, across the board, we do it the right way. So we don't have to go, sorry, sorry, we'll get it right next time. Cause I feel like once Someone, anyone who screws this up is going to have a hard time reopening a second time until things are, you know what I mean? We got to do this right. So, uh, Mark Peterson, Pennsylvania Golf Association, thanks for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it, okay? Thanks for having me. Coming up next on Special Edition, not too long ago, I had the opportunity to talk with U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, David Freed, about scams. And with everything that's been happening, might be a good time to get a refresher. Don't go away. Welcome back to Special Edition. U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, David Freed, and I had the opportunity to talk about scams not too long ago. And with everything that's happening, we all might need a refresher. Always nice to have you here to talk about safety, especially when it comes to people who are trying to scam or rob or do something. And this time, you went to the phones? So we did, uh, you know, as part of the Attorney General's Elder Justice Initiative, uh, we wanted to do some outreach uh, here in the Middle District, and we were able to partner with uh, AARP and do a telephone town hall, and through the wonders of technology, you know, the technology that scammers use Mm -hmm. to try to scam us, uh, we were able to reach uh, almost 10,000 people. Now, this was all over the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, but... but uh, Just in Pennsylvania, Just in 10, Pennsylvania. 000. Wow. And the people, you know, I know that there were people from uh, this region on the call because people would identify uh, where they were from. And it was a great opportunity not only to, to get the word out and to, to help people be aware and vigilant of what's going on out there, but also to hear from the folks out there what's happening to them. Now, I had to chuckle because... We did this uh, uh, town hall in, in the afternoon, and I went back to the office, and, and, and about an hour later, I got a call from a number that I didn't recognize on my cell phone, and I didn't pick it up, which we shouldn't if we don't recognize the number. That's what we have voicemail for. Uh, if it's that important, they can leave a message, and, and, and we can get back uh, to whoever's calling. Uh, and the message was left, and the message was that my Social Security benefits were going to be suspended no. uh, if I didn't uh, press a key or, or, or call this number the back. The U.S. Attorney for yes. the Middle District of Pennsylvania got scammed? The, the, attempted, attempted. Attempted scam. The same day uh, that we did the outreach to, to <laughs> folks about it. So it's not just older folks, uh, but what we found is that 
they can be, you, you know, our, our older friends and neighbors and parents uh, can be, you know, particularly vulnerable to some of these scams. So I think it's important for us to get out there and talk about it. That was the first thing then that people talked about was not answering calls that they don't know. What right. else did they learn? So what we need to remember, what everybody needs to remember is that there's no federal agency that's going to call you on the telephone, uh, whether it's the IRS, that's a common scam, or Social Security. Uh, they are not going to call you on the telephone uh, and indicate that you owe money or or that you have to respond or your benefits will be suspended. Or they're coming to get you. Or they're coming to get you. That's <laughs> not going to happen. We, we have ways to do that, and calling people on the phones uh, is, is not one of them. Um, and, and, you know, generally people are using technology. They're using emails and, and, and your, your phones to try to uh, get you on board to get your information. So we're seeing the Social Security scams. Mm-hmm. IRS scams are common. Lottery phone scams where, where people will be called uh, and the caller will say, you know, you've won a lottery jackpot. Uh, in order to collect it, you need to send uh, us, you know, $500 uh, for incidental costs. Uh, and, you know, we've seen situations where people will use, you know, the names of legitimate uh, uh, businesses or sweepstakes, you know, in particular Publishers Clearinghouse. Oh, yeah. That's where they will, will say they're from. Uh, and we have to be very vigilant about those. You know, one that, that uh, hit home in particular, and I know this has happened uh, all over uh, this district, uh, at two points uh, for people connected with me, one was a good family friend, and one was my aunt. Uh, who, and, and I got a call uh, from her husband, uh, and they were in Florida. Uh, and they're uh, older folks, and... Uh, her husband called me and said, you need to call your Aunt Gail right now. She is on her way to the bank to transfer money to someone who called because they called and said that, uh, you know, your cousin uh, uh, was in a fight and uh. he was arrested and in jail and, he, and they need money in order to, uh. to get him out. Now, the story was somewhat plausible because uh, this is a younger cousin of mine. They had his name. Uh, he's a great kid. But the story was he was at a wedding in Buffalo, New York, and something happened after the wedding. They we had all know his name. they had his name and all his details, and they knew to call his grandmother wow. to try to get this money. And it was so believable. And and this is this is an educated uh, woman. You know, lives in Florida, uh, very comfortable living, and uh, she was going to do it because she was worried about her grandson. Now, luckily, her her husband was smart enough to to call, but she wouldn't listen to him. So he called, you know, the nephew who's the U.S. attorney and said, you better get your aunt on the phone. Uh, and we got her to stop. And as it turns out, then a couple minutes later, uh, we got a hold of my cousin. He was alive and well and, and working Never at it. Wor- wor- had not been in <laughs> Buffalo and was working at his job in, in Philadelphia. So uh, it, it happens and, wow. and it's indiscriminate. So we got to be very careful about those because the, the amount of information that's out there about you and me, you know, if you're making online purchases, which many of us do, if you're signing up for things, uh, in, in, in some places, driver's license information is sold or credit information is sold. Uh, there's so much information out there that, you know, wily criminals will put that information together 
and use it to try to take advantage. Well, everybody has a website. The IRS has a website. The Social Security Administration has a website. Everybody has a website that re- that asks for your information. So, mm. right, and we expect that. Yeah. Uh, so, in order to do business, in order to, to frankly function uh, in 2020, you know, we have to participate uh, uh, in, in those sorts of things. But we've got to be very careful. Uh, with making sure that the the entities that we're giving our information to are are legitimate uh, and that as much as we possibly can, we're protecting our personal information. And that means, as we said at the outset, if you don't recognize the number that's calling you, don't pick up the phone. Let them leave a message. Do not give out personally identifying information over the phone. Don't give your credit card number Mm. over the phone. Don't give your social security number over the phone. Don't give banking information over the phone. Well, it's it's even kind of safe to say that if somebody is calling you, you didn't look for that. But the thing is now, the new thing is, all these calls that we keep getting about electric use. I'm calling from so-and-so and... what about things like that? So it's one one of the things that 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 I was most struck by uh, in in our in our town hall, and it was actually a great back and forth. There was an FBI agent with me, oh. representative from AARP, and myself, and and the folks that were calling in. You, you know, there's there's a significant level of dissatisfaction out there, and I think it's legitimate uh, about really the limits of our do not call programs. Yes, you know they're fine to a point, but the people who want to take advantage of others are always trying to find a way around it. You know, frankly, the, the technology companies and the communications companies that are, are facilitating uh, these kind of calls, I think, need to be held to account. And, and, and I know that uh, that's a priority for the department. I know there's legislation uh, pending on that issue. And, and really, that's the difference that we can all make. Uh, I made sure to reach out to the staffs of both of our United States senators after the call. Now, I'm sure they're well-versed in this, but I wanted them to know, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate I have the advantage that I have relationships with the staffs of both of our great senators. And I can reach out and say, hey, heads up, I just did this call with <laughs> 10,000 Pennsylvanians. Uh, and, and people are really concerned that they sign up for these do not call lists and they don't work. Yeah. Now, um, one thing, a, a nice advantage that we have in Pennsylvania that I'm not sure every other state has is our attorney general's office. So the state attorney general's office mm-hmm. has a consumer protection bureau. Yes. And that really is a good place to take these kind of complaints because if you're signed up for the do not call list and you're still getting calls, well, that's not necessarily in my world. That's annoying. It's annoying to me as a consumer. It's not necessarily a crime. It right. is a consumer protection issue. Uh, and the Attorney General of Pennsylvania has an entire section uh, that works on that. They are well-versed in these kind of complaints, and that's where those complaints need to go. But it's very frustrating. Well, I have a husband at home who, when he does happen to fall into one of these, it's the Attorney General's Office of Consumer Protection number that he rattles off to them. Here, call this number, and you'll be able to get a <laughs> He gives them the number. But you know, there are, I guess, you would think... I don't know. Do you think by now that people would know better? I think the scams get more and more sophisticated. Oh. And, and, and when the, 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 the criminals are using information that they've gleaned from somewhere and there's, there's always a new, uh, uh, a new scam, there, there's a new method 
and you know it might be something that's going on uh, in the region. Like let's say there was flooding uh, in the region. Right. Uh, you know there'll be scams around that. Let's say there was a bad hailstorm and a lot of hail damage. There'll be scams around that. So you, you we've all got to be very careful uh, about anyone, frankly, who's coming to us uh, unsolicited unwarranted and trying to get our personal information and was most of the calls that you were dealing with just about telephone was there email included was there um even some people coming to the door you know you hear about that as well so was all that a a mix of this so uh definitely on uh the email side uh and, and that's one uh, that you know we're particularly concerned about because I mean just just follow the national news. Oh, you know you you see and you know we're still talking years later about election interference and hacking, uh, and the way that 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 starts is 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 a phishing email, an email that might seem to be about another subject. And so we did hear uh, a few uh, people recounting issues of receiving emails and responding to to these emails and sometimes the scariest thing about email is sometimes your information uh could be getting stolen and you don't even know it you know, wow. j- just because you responded to something on an email or, or clicked a preference that could put a virus on your computer uh and your information could 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 be stolen so you need to be very careful about that and then, yeah, and then that's not just and i know i don't want to alarm people too much it's right. not just from receiving the email you have to take an action or provide some sort of information in order for that to work so it's almost like the same thing that you say about the phone if you don't know where it came from don't open it just delete absolutely yeah just just hit delete uh and, and it'll be gone and if you think about it uh it's it's whether somebody's coming to your door or using uh or calling your house phone or calling your cell phone or sending you an email or sending you a text message an unsolicited text message how often does that happen right uh, all the time uh it's just a different method of trying to do the same thing which is to take advantage of you and everybody's trying to get in they're all it's like you said it might not be physical but They're all trying to get in in different ways. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about the whole idea of hanging up and the do not call list and all these other types of things, are there things that people could say, could respond, or is not responding the best way to do it? So my first suggestion would be don't even pick up. Um, If you do respond and you get on the phone with somebody, say, I'm on a do not call list. Say, take me off of your call list. And what happens there? Well, they should take you they off. They should. Uh, if they're legitimate. Uh, if they're not, well, they'll keep calling you back, but then you'll know. And if you keep getting these harassing calls, uh, that's number one, a place to go to the Attorney General's Office uh, Consumer Protection. Now, we had one person call in uh, who recounted, gosh, I'm not sure, you know, 30 calls over the course of a couple of days. And when that happens, and 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 if you've communicated, uh, you know, I do not want to receive your calls. When the calls keep coming with that um, that frequency, that's the sort of thing where you can call your local police and say, "I am absolutely being harassed uh, by this." Now, uh, I caution that you want to make sure if that situation is going on, uh, even if you have a little pad by the phone, keep a little log. Uh, of when those calls have come in. You know, I've got 12 calls over the course of four hours. 
wow. or something like that. Yeah. You know, document that uh, because that's something a local police department might be able to help out with. Uh, you know, there are some, uh, the AARP has amazing resources, uh, and I'm not, I'm not a paid spokesperson for the AARP, but they have a list of numbers, uh, that you can call and hotline numbers. Uh, the FBI, uh, has a, a hotline number. That's 1-800-CALL-FBI. Uh, there's a Victim Connect hotline, uh, 855-484-2846. Uh, you know, so there are a lot of resources out there for people uh, who are willing to take advantage of them. Now, what we've seen, and it's understandable, is that sometimes when people are scammed, they're embarrassed, right. they're ashamed. And Especially they, if you lose money. Right. And they don't want to come forward mm-hmm. uh, and, and talk about it. And we understand that. And that's what you know the hotlines are for. But the fact is, uh, it's unfortunate if it happens, but the more information we have, the better chance we have of getting to the bottom of it and making sure that somebody else doesn't get victimized. So uh, one of the messages that we wanted to convey in the call and that I want to convey every time I talk about this is, uh, if it has happened to you, you are not nearly alone. Uh, This happens all the time to people who are quite sophisticated uh, because the criminals have gotten more sophisticated as well. Yeah, and uh, as far as all the information from the call, do you have a place on uh, the U.S. Attorney's site that uh, people would be able to uh, click on? And yeah, on our website, all this information is there. Uh, the victim hotline numbers are there, uh, and and uh, you know to the extent that that uh, people need to call, they can call those hotlines. There are a lot of resources out there. Yeah, just make sure that you. Uh, you're doing the calling. They're not calling you. Right. The IRS and Social Security are not going to be calling you. Say that again. The IRS and Social Security are not going to be calling you demanding money. Uh, federal government agencies and employees do not ask people to send money for prizes or unpaid loans, or they don't ask people to wire money, use a prepaid debt card or a gift card, ever. What? Ever. One more time. That never happens. Besides David Freed's office, you can also contact the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro. He's been looking into price gouging and other things since the coronavirus pandemic began. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. A production of Intercom Communications. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.